If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In my first groundbreaking interview with Pam Acker, who's about to join us live for a follow-up, we broke a bunch of news here on Restoring the Faith. You've seen her on LifeSite News. She was on a panel next uh, side-by-side with Bishop Schneider. You've seen her on Census Fidelium. You've seen the book. I've got a link to the book in the show notes here. You've got to get it from colbaycenter.org. The book is entitled Vaccinations, a Catholic Perspective. But just to prime you, I want to give you about a four-minute uh cut from our first interview so that we're all on the same page if you're just tuning in for the first time and you're about to see Pam Acker. Vaccinating against rubella doesn't actually help with congenital rubella syndrome. So if it did, there there might potentially be an argument for a grave cause, but it doesn't. And that's what we kind of see over and over and over again with these aborted fetal vaccines is that that they're not, not only are they questionably moral and and obviously evil in their origins but there's there's not grave cause that they're being used for we're vaccinating for chickenpox with aborted fetal cells chickenpox doesn't kill people unless you're too old to contract it and the reason that people are contracting it in their in their late teens early 20s when it's actually dangerous is because we started vaccinating for it so we've actually caused a grave problem by vaccinating the individual measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines. And so you now can only receive an MMR in, in the United States. Uh, that's that's all you can get. And in other countries as well, I think it's true. I, I'm, I'm most familiar with what's available in the U.S. But you can only get these three dosed at the same time. This means that as a Catholic, you cannot morally vaccinate your child for any of these three diseases because the rubella vaccine is produced in aborted fetal cells. And the virus that the rubella vaccine uses was obtained from aborted fetal tissue. So there are approximately 99 abortions involved altogether to make the cell line and to produce the virus. Um, most people don't realize that. Uh, they they want to think of the, the abortion component as it's sort of remote. I'm not, I'm not formally participating. It's only material participation. Um, they get a little bit more co- uncomfortable when they realize it's about 100 abortions. This, this wasn't one child that died, thing that people can be pretty divided about. But, but for 
your heart to be able to be transplanted into someone else's body, it basically still needs to be beating when they take it out or have just ceased beating because they just killed you so they could take your heart. Um, this The same thing is true with these aborted fetal researchers. This wasn't just like, I mean, it's bad enough, right? It, it, it's it's 100% already completely immoral um, to to murder a little baby in the womb and take its parts out of the mother and then experiment on those parts. These babies were often actually removed via C-section, still living, so that then their tissue could be experimented on so it would be sufficiently fresh and undamaged. Um, and sometimes they were being dissected, basically, with their hearts still beating. Um, this is, I mean, this isn't just immoral. This is utterly satanic. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's beyond barbaric. It's, it is, as you said, satanic. It's demonic. I think I can't help but everyone can probably imagine they've seen the image, the famous image of a C-section baby coming out all in in this in the sack. You know, this is a live birth, is what this is. This is a live yeah. birth, yeah. and that the heart is beating, and you are cutting into the baby. For yeah. what the concentration of of human fetal DNA that's present mm-hmm. in these in these vaccines, especially, I mean, the chickenpox vaccine has more aborted fetal DNA in it than it has active ingredient for the chickenpox. Like it's, it's a little bizarre. Um, so the concentration of DNA that's present in these vaccines is, is more than sufficient for this homologous recombination to occur. And it could explain why, um, because scientists are, are struggling to figure out because there seems to be an environmental component to autism, but there also seems to be a genetic component to it. And they're struggling to figure out why, why do some of these autistic kids have hundreds of de novo mutations that just came out of nowhere. Their parents don't have these, you know, how'd they get, how'd they get this many mutations in this, in this short amount of time? Yeah. This explains that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a reasonable biological mechanism for that. So it's not, it's, you know, and it, it makes sense, right? Mike, that the, um, this is not a moral thing to do. It's not moral to inject, uh, a, a dead murdered baby's cellular parts into your body. Um, of course not. So there's gonna be there's gonna be consequences. This is, this is in violation of natural law. There's going to be natural consequences to this. Miss Acker is about to join us live. That was pretty stunning information, though. The fact that uh, live human beings are being harvested, the cells of those human beings, and those cell lines continue to be used in biology today. Without further ado. Miss Pam Acker joining us again live. How are you, ma'am? I'm well, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining me again. Um, all right, let's get right into it. First of all, breaking within the last couple of weeks, you've got the Johnson Johnson vaccine coming out. This is unique from the mRNA vaccines that we talked about Pfizer last time, uh, where supposedly J&J is saying you only need one shot. You don't have to have all this infrastructure to keep it at, you know, negative 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um but it's only 60 to 80% effective, so they say. Can you help unpack all of this stuff for us? What do you make of the J&J vaccine? Sure. Um, so since this is a Catholic channel, the first thing that we're going to have to make of the, the J&J vaccine is the fact that it is produced directly in aborted fetal cells. So unlike the Pfizer vaccine and the um, uh Moderna vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are they're what's called viral vector vaccines. So they've taken a virus called adenovirus and they've basically loaded it up 
with coronavirus antigens. So it's closer to um, a normal vaccine delivery platform like we've seen in the past, where you would actually inject um, somebody with an attenuated or weakened virus. But this is um, a genetically modified virus. So they've taken um, basically the outside of one virus and they've packed, you know, potentially some DNA in, um, potentially the spike protein on the outside. Um, I haven't looked at the the specifics of exactly um, how Johnson and Johnson developed their vaccine because I can't find their um, uh, their emergency use authorization published online. I know they applied for one. Um, I was able to find their their st- uh, study data on clinicaltrials.gov, but their their um, viruses that they're culturing for this vaccine are being grown in the PERC6 cell line. And that originated from an 18-week-old aborted child. Um, AstraZeneca's vaccine is very similar, it's, except it's done in the HEK293 cell line, which is the cell line that has you know, raised so much controversy with the interviews I've done with LifeSite. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to learn more about that one, you can definitely check, check them out. Um, so as Catholics, it, just no, we, just, we, can't, we can't do this vaccine. Um, you know, if we look at it from from uh, just from a scientific perspective, the the study design is kind of similar to the Pfizer vaccine, unfortunately, in that their their um, primary endpoint that they were looking at, the primary outcome they were they were testing to see if this was effective or not, was whether or not you developed moderate to severe COVID nineteen disease. Now, like they, they characterize this as you had to have it molecularly confirmed, so you had to have the PCR test. And um, you had to have a certain number of symptoms that they describe in the in the clinical trial, which is available on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and uh, they, so they're again, they're just looking to see is this vaccine preventing you from developing severe symptoms? There's there's nothing in their primary or secondary outcomes that that say they're testing people to see if it's preventing transmission. So a lot of the folks who are sort of urging taking these vaccines on you as a moral duty and saying that, you know, the the duty of protecting other people from COVID could potentially outweigh the participation in the um, aborted fetal cell, uh, cell line use. They don't really have a leg to stand on um, when it comes to the science because there's no evidence that any of these vaccines currently licensed or about to be licensed are mm-hmm. actually going to prevent transmission of the disease. So, um, that's kind of from the scientific standpoint. There's a couple of things I wanted to sort of pull out um, there. The, the Johnson & Johnson did um, look at people who had comorbidities, um, which is a little bit better than the design of the Pfizer study. Um, and they looked at study participants over the age of 60. But it, presenting it that way is a little bit um, disingenuous because we're not really worried about people over 60. We're worried about people over 75. And that 15 years um, makes a big difference in terms of people's ability to handle viral infections. Um, so they're they're kind of, you know, spinning this in the most positive light in their press release, which is fairly typical for these companies. And their clinical trials um, data did not actually indicate what their placebo was. So I don't know if their placebo is a saline placebo or not, or if it's um, the adenovirus without the the um, the coronavirus modifications, in which case their reporting of, you know, not seeing any quote unquote significant safety issues with the vaccine um, might be slightly misleading depending on what their placebo is. But until that data is, you know, publicly available and easily findable, um, 
I can't really, you know, make any determination one way or the other about that. So when but they say that it's 60 to 80 percent effective, it's effective at what? Because you just said it doesn't help. It, it, it doesn't prevent the transmission of the disease. So you could right. still transmit it even after taking the vax. Right. That's that's true for all the vaccines that are currently licensed. Um, as far as we know, there's no data that has actually been uh, accumulated to indicate whether this interrupts transmission or interrupts infection only to indicate that if you take the vaccine and you are infected and you develop COVID, then your symptoms are likely to be less severe. Um, and that was for the Pfizer trial that was based on 170 participants who came down with COVID, what they called confirmed COVID, mm. um, with, which uh, was lab tested and then they had symptoms. Um, they, they threw out in the Pfizer trial, this is actually kind of shocking, um, they threw out uh, 3,400 participants who had suspected COVID from their data analysis. So they didn't actually uh, calculate those cases in when they looked at vaccine efficacy. And if you do include include those cases, um, Dr. Peter Doshi over at British Medical Journal has run these numbers, then the vaccine is at most 29% effective, effective the Pfizer one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't really know, um, again, because I, I can't look at the, the data, it's currently not published, um, for Johnson and Johnson, whether they've done something kind of similar where they're there. But I do know that they're just looking at uh, 468 of their 43,783 participants. And these 468 people who came down with COVID, um, you know, I guess uh, 66% of them were in the placebo group versus 34% being in the vaccine group. Um, and they found variable efficacy across uh, continents. So they did some, they tested some folks in the U S some mm-hmm. folks in um, uh, South America and some folks in, in South Africa. And South Africa had um, like 57, I think it was, yeah, 57% uh, efficacy rate versus the U.S. had 72%. So there's some indication just from these data even that there's probably uh, a, a nutritional and um, vitamin deficiency component here to, to worse outcomes with with SARS-CoV-2 infection. Mm-hmm. And that actually makes a lot of sense based on the research that we know um, in terms of vitamin D levels and severe COVID um, disease, because you can um, you can establish a much better correlation between uh, high vitamin D and protection against severe COVID than you can between any of these vaccines and protection against severe COVID. Okay, so can, for, can a layman extrapolate from that then that... Uh, upping your vitamin D, especially in the winter months when it's harder to get, uh, from, from being outside that, that, that is an, a prudent thing to do. Yeah, I would say that's definitely a prudent thing to do. Um, vitamin D is, is incredibly cheap. It's very easy to obtain over the counter supplements. Um, and most people could stand to have their vitamin D levels improved. Um, now, you know, each individual has to sort of you know, take their own condition and their underlying conditions into account and, you know, no, this isn't medical advice. I'm not a doctor, you know, but, um, uh, on average people in developed countries tend to have low vitamin D levels and people Mm -hmm. at higher, um, latitudes tend to have worse vitamin D levels because there's less sun exposure. So, Mm -hmm. um, if you suspect you might be vitamin D deficient, then, you know, vitamin D supplementation is a fairly, uh, easy, effective, and, um, uh, inexpensive method to decrease your risk from having severe COVID. Okay. You talked about uh, confirmed COVID cases, um, mm-hmm. confirmed within the J&J studies that they, that they used. Let's talk about confirmed cases. Um, 
am I correct in, in my understanding that they changed the way, the manner in which the PCR test is used to confirm cases? In other words, if you presented one positive test before, that counted as a, as a positive case, but now you have to present one positive test plus symptoms? Is that, yes. a, is that a new change? Yes, um, that, that is a new change that happened in late January. Um, so, and, and there was some changes too with how the PCR test is being evaluated. So for a long time, I mean, researchers have basically been screaming <laughs> that, you know, the PCR test needs to be standardized. We need to be running this a, a specific number of cycles. We need to be doing this the same way across the board, across all the states, across all the hospitals, across all the testing centers. And, and it hasn't been, and the threshold needs to be lower than, than the number of cycles that are being run in most testing centers, because the more cycles you run, the more likely you are to pick up a false positive and you're more, you're more likely to pick up, you know, just trace, trace, trace amounts of viral DNA that, that aren't, um, that aren't even relevant. Um, and that's why you ended up with so many asymptomatic, um, quote unquote cases. Um, Mm. Some of them are probably false positives. Some of them may actually be subclinically infected with the virus, but they're actually not going to infect anybody else. Um, because in order to infect somebody else, you, you don't need just one viral particle. You need a, a, sort of to reach a threshold of viral particles. If, 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 you, if, if I took one little SARS-CoV-2 and put it directly into your mouth, Mike, you would not develop COVID-19 because your immune system can handle one virus. It's when you... Um, you reach the, sort of a, that, that threshold of the immune system can no longer handle the viral load that you have a problem. But if you, if you um, have such a low viral load that we can't, you, you only test positive after say 40 cycles of PCR, you're not going to infect anybody. Um, mm-hmm. So, And the, the way the PCR test works is that it, it amplifies any of the particles that it may detect. So even if it detects yeah. one particle, it sort of amplifies that. Is that right. correct? So it, it amplifies, um, any DNA that's present in the system. And so you can start out with, you know, hypothetically, you could start out with a single uh, copy of DNA and you could end up with millions of copies after um, a certain number of cycles because it increases exponentially. So that's why it matters to say, well, do we cut it off at, at, you know, 33 cycles or 35 cycles or 38 cycles or 40 cycles, you know, to, to your average layperson, well, the difference between 38 and 40 cycles is not that much, but it's, we're talking orders of magnitude. We're not talking you know, it, it's, you know, um, let, let me, let me ask it this way. Um, the CDC changed the testing protocol on inauguration day, the day yeah. Joe Biden took the oath of office on January 20th, they changed the testing protocol. Now, if you go to Drudge Report today, you will see that uh, the, the, the cases are, have, have dropped in the United States by 77%. Are these two data points related? Uh, definitely. So this is actually not the first time that a vaccine has been introduced and then disease criteria has been changed. Um, so this is, this is, um, cause definitely if you, if you change, if you go from, you know, you have to have one confirmed COVID test to, you have to have a confirmed COVID test and you have to have symptoms. You're going to have fewer people who, who qualify as having COVID. I mean, just, just logically, rationally, any lay person out there who's never studied any epidemiology, who's never been in a lab, who's never developed a vaccine can understand that that makes sense. Right. So the same thing happened when they introduced the polio vaccine and polio vaccine sort of goes way back. It's one of the first, you know, major vaccines developed in the U S 
And, you know, it, after after smallpox, it's the one that's most often sort of cited and said, well, you know, vaccine saves lives because look at look at what happened with polio. And we had this huge drop off in polio cases. And, um, you know, we had a huge drop off in polio cases after the polio vaccine was introduced. And I'm actually going to read a little section from this book. This is one of my favorite books, um, Dissolving Illusions by Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic. And. Uh, they document a lot of things about the history of vaccination that that are really kind of quite shocking. Um, so, in on on page two thirty two of the book, um, they they're talking about how polio you know stopped being a, a problem in the U S. and we stopped having all these cases of paralytic polio. So they they say that the pr- the practice among doctors before nineteen fifty four was to diagnose all patients who experienced even short term paralysis of twenty four hours with polio. In 1955, the year the Salk vaccine was released, the diagnostic criteria became much more stringent. If there were no residual paralysis, if there was no residual paralysis 60 days after onset, the disease was not considered to be paralytic polio. This change made a huge difference in the documented prevalence of paralytic polio because most people who experience paralysis recover prior to 60 days. So basically, prior to the introduction of the vaccine, if you were paralyzed for 24 hours, you were diagnosed with polio. After the introduction of the vaccine, if you were paralyzed for 60 days, you were diagnosed with polio. And again, it doesn't take an epidemiologist to know that this is going to cause a dramatic decrease in the cases. Um, and just by changing the, the diagnostic criteria. And that that sort of, you know, just set us up for a massive case drop, which I think is the exact same thing that's happened here with COVID. Um, the same thing also happened with measles. Um, if you can pull up that graph I sent you, Mike, sure. um, about uh, the measles vaccine being introduced, so a lot of people will will you know kind of throw these graphs around out there and say, look, you know, the the vaccine was introduced and the cases went way down, right? Um, is that what we're seeing? I don't want to move ahead too far ahead if I don't have my. Is that the right one? <laughs> I can't see because I can only see you on the camera. I am display okay. I am displaying uh, the measles vaccine chart. Okay, so does it kind of go like that? Oh, sort of no, level off and then drop way. at the end in about nineteen sixty three. Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so people will look at graphs like that and they'll say, "Okay, we introduced the measles vaccine there in nineteen sixty three, and we saw you know this dramatic." decrease in measles cases, right? Um, But again, and again, I'm referencing Dr. Humphrey's book, um, the criteria for diagnosing the disease was narrowed. So prior to 1963, you didn't do any serological, um, and that means you're looking at at blood and so antibodies and and, uh, potential viral load and things like that. You didn't do any serological verification. Um, And you didn't, you know, track to see if the person who was diagnosed with measles had actually been exposed to another person diagnosed with measles. Mm -hmm. So if you change that and you say, okay, now in order to be diagnosed with measles, you have to have been in contact recently with someone who has measles and you also have to have these lab tests that confirm that you have measles, what's going to happen to the case numbers? Exactly what we see in that graph. Right. Okay. Can you pull up the other one about um, measles, the measles deaths? Yep. It's up. Okay, great. Um, if you look at the measles deaths, you see a very different story. At the introduction of the vaccine, basically nothing happens. Okay, people weren't dying from measles in 1960s. And um, they weren't dying actually from a lot of things. If you can pull up that last graph I sent you about the U.S. disease statistics, 
and these are all graphs that are pulled directly out of this this book, Dissolving Illusions. Mm -hmm. um, they're posted online. Um, uh, if you look at that graph, that's got five different diseases, and that includes scarlet fever and typhoid, for which we don't have vaccines. And you can see how all of them decline at roughly the same point, regardless of when vaccines are introduced. The death rate for all these diseases was declining for other reasons besides vaccination before we started introducing vaccination. So when you're looking at, you know, dropping case rates on a graph, you're usually not seeing the whole story when it comes to vaccination because usually behind those dropping case rates, there's, there is a diagnostic criteria change. And that's exactly, we're, we're like living through that right now with COVID. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's super, super frustrating, you know, because then, then, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, somebody's going to throw up this graph and be like, look, you know, as soon as the vaccine was introduced, we saw this dramatic drop off in cases. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow, know? that's and that's I mean, astonishing. See, I, I didn't think about it that way, but in retrospect, a decade from now, you're absolutely right. People are going to point to the warp speed, $20 billion rush to market, mRNA, unproven, untested um, vaccine, and, and, and claim victory because of that, when all they really did was change the testing protocol. Right. And I've even seen the articles that are published right now, which are probably going to be very hard to find 10 years from now, um, that that say that this is way too fast. Like the change in case rate is way too fast for the vaccine to be causing it. Is it absolutely 100 percent too fast, given the, the, the numbers of people that have been vaccinated, and given the fact that, you know, you can receive. I, I read, I've read news stories in the past couple of days about people who've received both shots and still contracted COVID and been hospitalized for it. I've seen news stories about people who've had their first shot and died from it died from COVID or died with COVID, I guess I probably should say. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's no, absolutely no way that the vaccine could be decreasing the cases. It's, it's really just um, monkeying with the numbers. That sort of leads logically into this whole uh, VAERS system, vaccine adverse event reporting system. And, you know, putting the entire restoring the faith YouTube channel at risk, even for asking this question, but <laughs> These are government-reported figures. There have been deaths as a result of the vaccine, attributable to the vaccine. There have been hospitalizations, Bell's palsy, all kinds of things. Right. My question to you, though, and, and everyone can go out to the Veris website and, and look at the statistics that the government uh, reports. Do you find these numbers to be believable? Um, I find them to be abjectly too low. And so does the Department of Health and Human Services. So... There was a study that was done um, to look at VAERS data because VAERS is self-reported and it's not um, monitored officially. So you can't you know, sort of say that the VAERS data is the official government statistics because nobody's actually monitoring those cases to see if that actually there was a, a causal relationship between the adverse reaction and the vaccine. So when you look at VAERS, there's, there's certainly some elements of people are reporting things that maybe aren't associated with the vaccine. But what the Department of Health and Human Services found, and this has been published in literature, is that less than 1% of adverse reactions are actually reported to VAERS. Wow. Less than 1%. Why is so, that? Um, I think that part of it is um, a lack of 
just lack of knowledge. Most people have never heard of VAERS. Uh, probably more people have heard of VAERS now. So I would think that maybe, you know, more than 1% potentially of COVID reactions are being reported, but certainly not 100% of COVID reactions are being reported. I, there's still a lot of people who've never heard of VAERS. Um, and so if you don't if you don't know about a system to report a vaccine adverse reaction, you can't report it. Um, the other problem, and we, we t discussed this a little bit in our last interview, is a lot of the things that are are plausible biological adverse events associated with vaccination are things that take a long time to develop, especially autoimmune conditions mm -hmm. and allergies. And so, you know, if you're a, if you're a mom and you vaccinated your kid and they develop eczema um, or they develop asthma or they develop hay fever, you know, they're, that's going to be developed over a period of months or years and you're not going to be able to trace it back to that vaccination, unless you were already clued in that vaccines may be a problem, in which case you probably didn't vaccinate your kid. So I think a lot of the reason that that severe adverse reactions are underreported is because there's um, there's not a lot of awareness about the possibility of adverse reactions. And of course, if, if you're a mom and you go in your physician's office and you say, my kid was fine until they had this MMR vaccine and now they're not, the, the first thing out of the physician's mouth, unfortunately, is going to be, you know, well, it wasn't the vaccine. And, and that's not to, you know, cast dispersion on these physicians, you know, they're, they're in the position of being undereducated about all of this and not really having any idea what's going on and that, that vaccines do cause harm. Um, you know, they were taught in medical school that they save lives and they're perfectly safe and you need to deal with these people who are vaccine hesitant. That's all they were taught, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if you've ever known anybody in med school, you know, that their ability to, you know, do a lot of research on the side is, is just non-existent. You know, right. so they get shuttled out into practice and they, they just have no idea. And so that's another reason I think these things get underreported is because people believe their doctors and doctors said there's no relationship to the vaccine. So so the mother says, well, this must all be in my head. And, and therefore, you know, they they go on their way and they think that they're the only person out there dealing with something like this. And the reality is there's hundreds of thousands of people out there dealing with stuff like this. When I walk into buildings and am offered a face diaper, usually it comes out of a box that has a warning label that says this does not prevent the uh, the spread of COVID-1984. Um, they say <laughs> that right there on the box. And yet we're led to believe that we have to wear these face diapers. But now the CDC is coming out and saying uh, two is better than one. Maybe three is better than two. Now they're saying a moist is better than a dry. How do we, un how do we understand all of this, Pam? Um, well, I tell you what, if you put a moist, uh, cotton cloth on your face and you leave it there and you breathe out over it and, and you, you touch it all day long and you're actually causing more things to accumulate on it that you then can breathe in or you can get back on your hands and, you know, maybe then you go to eat later and all those sorts of things. So the, the moist one is an absolutely horrific idea just from somebody who used to culture bacterial cells. Um, it, it, double layering is also a bad idea. I mean, that's going to decrease your ability to take in sufficient oxygen, but the virus particles can still pass through a cotton cloth or a, uh, a, a disposable face diaper. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, the, the the fibers simply are not close enough together to stop any viruses at all. And I was actually just watching. So, so if you, you know, if you're watching this live and you have an opportunity to, to sort of pause here and come back to the recording later, um, it, it, you know, do that and jump over to LifeSite News because their, their vaccine conference that they released yesterday, the, the, the third um, discussion that they, the panel discussion that they do, there's a lady on there, um, her name is is Kristen Megan, I think, and she is an industrial hygienist. She 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 for a living she evaluates personal protective equipment, 
And she was saying if if you if if as as an industrial hygienist and she's in charge of say you know all all of the the safety precautions for a grocery store and and she's trying to prevent viral spread. If she required the employees to to do what you are required to do if you walk into Kroger mm-hmm. and and put this you know ridiculous contraption on your face, if she had required them to do that, she would have potentially been subject to jail time. She would have been fined, and she probably would have been fired because these these things do not stop viruses. Viruses are too small. Now, if you double layer. Is it going to be any more effective? No, because the spaces between the fibers are still sufficiently large enough for a virus to pass. Even if you double layer them and you've got some sort of, you know, extra crossing over of the fibers, it's it's just not going to prevent the flow. And then also on the LifeSite News Conference, there was a gentleman who worked in um, uh, proper gas mask usage in the Air Force. Yep. If you do not have a seal all the way around the edges of this thing, um, what you're actually doing is creating sort of a vacuum effect as you breathe in and out that you are pulling air in at the sides. Mm-hmm. So you're pulling extra things from the environment in. And then those particulates, if they're, if they're, if they're larger than a virus, are going to get trapped on the inside and you're going to be breathing that in. Okay, so you're actually yeah, increasing uh, your exposure. That's not only true. I've personally experienced that when in, in military training, when you go through the gas chamber, you have to, mm-hmm. you have to stick your fingers through and break the seal you have to tap on the glass to demonstrate that your fingers are all the way through breaking the seal on your gas mask. And uh, if you just put it back on your face without clearing it, you're breathing in those uh, those CS particles, and and you're gonna, <laughs> you're going to know that they're there because uh, they they make themselves known. Uh, right. So that's absolutely true um, right. about the seal. Why though, Pam? I mean, I'm asking you to speculate here, and maybe this is just a rhetorical question. You're pointing out the scientific reality of the effectiveness of these diapers that they want us to wear. And in all probability, this YouTube channel is going to get a strike merely for pointing out an objective reality. Why is that? That is a question that's above my pay grade. Um, You can never really get into the minds of somebody else um, or the mind of somebody else and there's there's all kinds of speculation that could be made about why this is happening what's happening i mean the more charitable speculations are well you know people find find these things comforting to wear it gives them some sort of feeling of security and so we'll just insist that everybody wear them so everybody feels better but i you know i i don't think uh you find that explanation satisfactory and i don't find that explanation satisfactory either um uh you know but i i try not to officially sort of go into discussions that could lead to, to things like, you know, psyops and, and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, Sure. Because I, I don't, I don't know. I don't follow the politics. I, I, I just follow the science. Right. Um, And I think that's a great point. Um, I want to hear from our friends at glory and shine. And in 30 seconds, we're going to respond to uh, a few of your critics, many of whom have reached out to me directly um, so that'll be an interesting <laughs> second half of the interview.
We're back with Pam Acker from the Colbe Center, whose book, Vaccination, A Catholic Perspective, has caused waves. I want to bring up an image here. Archbishop Nauman of Kansas City, Kansas, he's sort of the pro-life czar in the United States and the USCCB. And here you see his quotation saying, quote, Receiving the COVID-19 vaccine ought to be understood as an act of charity towards the other members of our community. Um, Pam, how can you as a layperson, playing devil's advocate here, go against, contradict not only the Roman pontiff, the USCCB, the weight of most of the clerics. I mean, the only ones really standing shoulder to shoulder with you right now are Bishop Schneider and Strickland. Right. So um, I'm not directly contradicting the the moral teachings of the church. I'm pointing out that these teachings, okay, not these teachings, but statements like the one you just quoted are based on an incorrect and improper understanding of the science involved. It cannot possibly be an act of charity to my neighbor if the only protective effect of this vaccine is actually to prevent me from developing further disease. Okay, if that's what's actually been established, that's the only thing that's been established, is that if I take this jab, then I'm less likely to develop severe COVID. How is that How is that an act of charity to you, Mike? It, it, it can't be. It's an act of self-preservation. And so there's a misperception that because this thing is called a vaccine and because in general vaccines are supposed to prevent transmission of disease, that 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 this would be an act of charity. And so this bishop, who I'm sure has the best intentions in the world, simply does not understand the research studies that have come out. And and, you know, in I have more expertise in that area than he does. Mm-hmm. So. But what about, I mean, this is, he's the pro-life czar. I mean, and he made news, Archbishop Nauman did, by becoming the first non-cardinal to hold that seat. He beat out Supich. Um, for the person who's supposed to be the defender of life in the United States, how is he missing the fact that, as, as you pointed out, at, perhaps hundreds of babies have been sacrificed on the altar of science in the development of these vaccines. Right. Well, if you listen to the vaccine researchers and their public statements, um, so for example, Stanley Plotkin will tell you, and he's in on YouTube in several places telling you that there's only two abortions from whom the, the fetal cells were derived. And he's not technically lying because one cell line comes from one individual because the tissue from that individual, unless it's a hybrid cell line, it is is used, and then the, all the cells that are grown came from that one individual baby. What Mr. Plotkin is not telling you when he says this is that the research that he published included the use of 76 aborted fetal specimens. 76. Mm. But only two of them resulted in viable cell lines. So he's saying, well, the cell lines only involved two. Directly, yes, but indirectly, no. Um, the research that led up to him being able to create those cell lines in the first place involved 74 babies who died before that. This is true of every single cell line that's used in vaccine development. And this is all documented on Children of God for Life, and it's been documented for, for a couple of decades. And and I don't know why 
nobody is sufficiently aware of this situ of this information and why all of a sudden like i'm all over the internet as like the the primary purveyor of this stuff because this is not my research this is this is debbie vintage from children of life this is dr deicher from south Coast pharmaceuticals i i'm just saying it what they've already discovered and they've already published you know years ago um but I think because I'm saying it as a scientist who used to do vaccine research and who actually has worked with cell lines, um, people are starting to take it seriously. And I think the other tremendous problem is that when you try to explain to somebody what a cell line is and how it works and what it does, you end up talking, if you're talking with somebody who doesn't have the, the, the scientific expertise and all the technical jargony, you know, know-how, um, they hear words like immortalized. Oh, well, that means it lives forever. So we don't need any more cell lines. No, <laughs> that means it's not primary cell culture and we can subculture it a, 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 an indefinite number of times in the laboratory, but they, those cells will eventually die and they will need to be replaced. And if they need to be replaced, then we search out, you know, new abortions and we do that. So Wallvax 2, which was created in 2015 in China, is to replace the WI38 and, um, the, I think it's the PERC6, but it's 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 one that's dying out and one that they can't get in China. So they electively aborted uh, uh, baby girls of specific age to try to make a, a new cell line, a designer cell line to replace these cell lines that they couldn't obtain in China. Um, so it's it's not this problem that's somehow confined to the 1970s. It really didn't involve just two babies because, you know, it, it, all of the failed research counts too. All of those babies died and all of those babies were used in experimentation, even if their cells aren't ending up in the current vaccine preparation right now. Mm -hmm. And I think people aren't, they're, they're, they're a little too willing. Again, it's, you know, you put on the white coat, they're a little too willing to just take Stanley Plotkin at his word, you know, when he comes out and does a little info blurb for, you know, some hospital and says, well, only two, only two abortions were involved. That's just dissimulation. I mean, that, that, that's, that's just flat, not the truth. Yeah. That is, dissimulation is a good word for it. Um, I listen to Father Ripperger a lot, so I try to make my moral distinctions clear. Yes, 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 that's good. Uh, yeah, he t yeah, he talks about dissimulation, actually, in, uh, right. in his talk on communism. So my right. question, though, I guess as a follow-up to this, before I ask about the LifeSite interview um, and the whole conference, which is so um, incredibly inspiring that that happened, is... During that conference, you were divulging some information that uh, even I had never heard of about how fresh the tissue needs to be and how uh, researchers had the opportunity to use cell lines, if you will, that were not derived from abortions, but they specifically elected to choose aborted cell lines and uh and you you in that interview it didn't sound like you had a very convincing scientific reason why they would make that decision well it, the the reason why they would make that decision is is because you know the 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 younger the cells are the um the the less number of times they've divided so hopefully the longer the cell line will last um again because it's not immortal um, and, and then also the fewer mutations that might've accumulated. So a lot of other cell lines are made in cancer cells. Um, so that's, that's the justification that's offered, but there's other ways to make the same kinds of cell lines. Um, you know, and we've, we've talked about, I mean, there, there, there are ways to obtain, um, ethical embryonic, you know, cells from, uh, from the placenta, from fetal blood, um, 
uh, from the umbilical cord. You know, this is this is not abortion is just not the only way to do this. And even if abortion was the only way to do this, mm-hmm. it would still be the wrong way to do it. It would be the wrong way to do it. And you would expect, again, this man to be the person who's standing up uh, defending the rights of the unborn, because as Bishop Schneider so touchingly said in that same panel, where you're side by side with Bishop Schneider, His Excellency, he said that the voice of the unborn is crying out for justice. Um, why? My question, though, I, I wrote this question down, I guess. We were supposed to do this interview a couple of weeks ago. This is before I was aware that the LifeSite conference was taking place. And so mm-hmm. I'm so glad that it has, and I don't mean to impugn them at all. But my question that I originally had was, why aren't there more voices like yours out in the marketplace? Well, um, there are more voices. <laughs> As you, you saw on LifeSite, there's a number of, of other voices. Um, and I've, I've got, had the privilege of gotten, getting to talk to some of them and, and, and see what some of them are saying um, over the past couple of weeks. But, but also, you know, it, again, going back to the, the medical school, you know, you, you're a father of, of, is it five now? Six. 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 You're a father of six. How much time do you have to sit on the couch and read about this stuff? Right. You know? Um, the, the average person either lacks the technical expertise or lacks the time to, to dig into all these things. And so, you know, you have to make informed decisions as, as a lay person, you know, both, both a, a, a lay person, you know, in, in ecclesiology, but also just a lay person in terms of, you know, technical expertise, you have to rely on other people to, to bring you information. I don't. I was sitting on my couch, unable to walk for two years, you know, reading, reading up on this stuff. Most people don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. And of course we know that folks like you, that, that, you know, the tech oligarchs are, um, displeased, shall we say? <laughs> Maybe a little. Can we get, let's get into the actual virus just for a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. Um, a couple couple questions on that, just about um, practical prevention steps, because look, I, I mean, if you don't have to contract it, I mean, why would you, right? I mean, so right. I, I, I'm, I'm not sitting here and saying, let's have a chicken pox party. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I know a lot of people who have had it and have right. been fine. So right. can we first start with just kind of practical things we can do um, it's in lieu of taking this uh, snake oil? Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, one of one of the ones we have kind of already canvassed is the vitamin D, and and there's just there's loads and loads and loads of research out there about the vitamin D, and there's there's and I, of course I'm forgetting his name, um, but there's a, a a British doctor who's grown very popular during this whole COVID thing, um, who 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 posts a lot of things, and some of the things he posts I think are are pretty pretty party line. And so they're not very helpful, but the stuff he posts on vitamin D is absolutely amazing. And he, he outlines based on research papers, you know, what your vitamin D blood levels need to be in order to be protected from this thing. You know, uh, if you get your vitamin D blood levels tested roughly how much you need to take supplement in order to, to, um, you know, keep them at, at a good level. And so his, his, his work is, is, um, is, is really quite stellar on vitamin D and oh, it's, it's John Campbell, Dr. John Campbell. So if you if you go onto YouTube and you type in John Campbell vitamin D, um, his stuff will come up and and you'll get great information about dosage and and all that sort of thing. Um, the other person you're going to want to look up on YouTube is is Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Again, she wrote that um, book on on vaccines, but she's done a really good um, 
really good presentation on vitamin C. And maybe maybe I can send that over to you, Mike, and you can link it in the show notes because it's kind of hard to find, actually, if you just search um, Suzanne Humphrey's vitamin vitamin C on YouTube, you, you end up with a lot of things that, that aren't really related to it. I think this information is kind of more actively being suppressed than the vitamin D stuff. Sure. Um, and so she talks about uh, just the fact that, you know, humans can't make their own vitamin C, but animals that can make their own vitamin C, when they're under stress, um, they make vitamin C in, in, in like, you know, grams per kilogram numbers. We're not talking milligrams per kilogram. You know, the average... Um, or the the FDA recommendation of, of vitamin C that you should take is is basically so subclinical it won't do you any good at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so Dr. Suzanne Humphreys out, really outlined some great research on high dose vitamin C, and particularly she also talks about liposomal vitamin C. And I, I have to tell you, as a scientist, I am a consummate skeptic. And so I was listening to her stuff about liposomal vitamin C, and I was like, well, is it really that effective? Um, and then I, I actually, you know, it's like, well, you know, I can conduct an experiment with an N value of one and I can do this on myself and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I bought some liposomal vitamin C and I, I waited until I got sick again. And I, I'll tell you that as a teacher, um, I usually spend about a month or more sick in the spring. Um, I don't have the world's greatest immune system. Um, and you know, being exposed to whatever all the kids has, you know, really, um, uh, you know, kind of knocks me out and I end up losing my voice. I end up with, uh, you know, bronchitis and laryngitis and everything else. Um, and I started to get sick a few weeks ago and, you know, at this point I, you know, can tell pretty well when something's coming on versus it being an allergy. And I took liposomal vitamin C and I was sick for approximately six hours, Mike, before I felt better. <laughs> so six hours versus a month, uh, an end value of one. Mm-hmm. You know, keep in mind. Uh, but I, I definitely think that uh, that liposomal vitamin C is, is something to have in your medicine cabinet. Um, so kind of so reminds me of um, the uh, a, a video about Dr. Brzezinski down in Houston that I watched, where he was using vi- uh, certain vitamin Cs on stage four cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's I think there's unfortunately also a lot of misinformation and wildly exaggerated claims out there about high dose vitamin C. But I definitely think people need to be getting more vitamin C than they're getting right now. And we're talking grams, not milligrams. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, definitely check that out with uh, with Dr. Campbell and Dr. Humphreys. What about for those of us who are going to contract the virus um, because we just will? Mm-hmm. And um, what do we know about uh, at this stage any of the long-term health effects to it? Because this is one of the criticisms that that you've received that, that you know you, you you you're misunderstanding the fact that people are going to have scarred lungs for the rest of their lives, and we don't really know how bad it's going to be. And you know you're you're really uh, not taking um, the risk seriously. Well, I, I'd like to point out that there's a double standard being applied in terms of the follow-on effects of COVID-19 and vaccine adverse effects. So if you develop anything after contracting COVID-19, it's considered a sequelae to COVID-19. If you develop anything after being injected with this vaccine, it's considered that it's not actually uh, an adverse reaction. It's just something else. You know, Hank Aaron died within 16 days of receiving his second dose of the vaccine, but he didn't die from the vaccine. You know, no worries. Don't don't worry about that. We're not going to mention that. Um, so there's there's definitely a double standard being applied. And, and most of what's coming out about these long-term effects that I've seen, and granted, I haven't seen everything, but most of what I've seen is anecdotal. And again, you know, something that's anecdotal isn't necessarily something to be ignored, but we're not talking about research studies demonstrating this stuff. I think this is another arm 
of 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 the the panic machine, uh, quite honestly, um, and and trying to get people to be more worried about this stuff now. Now that we're seeing it's not killing people, now we have to worry about the long term health effects. You know, well, do you worry about the long term health effects of of contracting the flu every year, of contracting a cold, of contracting mononucleosis, of contracting whatever else you might possibly contract? Are there long term effects? Sure, there are. Mm-hmm. You know, um, does that mean that we need to be hysterically worried about this virus? I don't think so. I think we need to put it in the context of what we know about infectious disease and how all the others, these other infectious diseases work and, and, and keep it in that context and not sort of exaggerate it out as this is somehow, because it's a quote-unquote novel coronavirus, this is somehow not going to progress like, like every other viral disease that, known to man. I had a medical doctor in the uh, central time zone email me saying that both you and I are going to have blood on our hands. Does that sound like uh, a rational opinion or a hysteria? Um, I, 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 I honestly think that sounds like hysteria. Um, He's a Catholic know, too. I am, I am trying to keep as many people from getting this vaccine as possible um, because the vaccine, it, it, not only does it have all these physiological adverse effects, but all of these vaccines that are currently available, you know, how much blood is on these vaccines? Mm-hmm. You know, and and do I think that somebody not getting vaccinated for COVID is going to lead to them dying? Absolutely not. Because there are so many other ways to prevent death with COVID. And there there are so many ways that this vaccine can cause death. Um, and, and you know, we're, we're, we haven't even gone into and we're not even going to scratch the surface of, you know, what are the long term effects, effects of the vaccine? You know, about the antibody dependent enhancement and, you know, what happens when when the next wave of coronaviruses comes through, you know, in, in and I'm not talking SARS-CoV-2, but there are coronaviruses that circulate in the population. Um, normally, you know, what's going to happen the next time you're exposed to a coronavirus after you've had this vaccine? What's, what happens if you've been exposed to coronavirus and you get this vaccine? What happens if you get this vaccine and, you know, a week later you miscarry your 14-week-old baby, which has also happened? You know, um, I, I don't, I just don't think, I think that people who resort to that kind of rhetoric um, don't have an argument. Yeah. Um, final question. What's next for you, Pam? What people don't know is that we actually know each other in real life. We used to go to mass together in Texas, and uh, you knew me back when I only had two children. Tried to, tried to. um, So your 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 poor eldest daughter sat with me through mass one time because Lizette's uh, was a little overwhelmed with with all of the little ones, and you weren't able to be at mass that weekend. And um, I think it scarred her for life because. She didn't know me very well. I was big and scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, uh, what I know about you as a, as a as a human being is not only are you an incredibly gracious person, but you're also a very discreet, private, and introverted person. You have not <laughs> sought the limelight. You don't no. want to be famous. You did write this book, and uh, I think I don't think you expected to become one of no. the fiercest and most <laughs> often cited critics of this uh, of this snake oil so what's next for you now what do you do um whatever hugh owen asks me to do and my confessor says is okay <laughs> um you know i don't i don't have uh, I, i've never been a, a big long-term planner type person um and i've learned from hugh over at the colby center that um you know you you walk through the doors that god opens for you and you know, when I wrote this book, I was convinced nobody was ever going to read it. Um, when I 
finished the book. I was convinced I was done. I wasn't going to have to do anything else with vaccines after that. And when, when Hugh Owen asked me if I'd be willing to do a few interviews, I sort of was like, you know, my first response was, you have to be kidding me. And uh, my second response was, well, maybe one or two. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, knowing me in real life, Mike, you know, that this is not, uh, this is not uh, my normal, my normal mode of, of operation. In fact, uh, I still get uh, really bad nerves every time before I get on air. Um, it's, you know, particularly if I'm about to be on air with Bishop Athanasius Schneider, um, you know, but just, you know, the, the simple answer to that question is whatever, whatever God asks me. So I've written him a blank check up to and including my life. Pam Acker, author of Vaccination, A Catholic Perspective. You can find the book at cobicenter.org. Thousands of copies have gone out the door already. Let's make it tens of thousands more. Like and share the video, please, and prevent your loved ones and your friends from taking the snake oil. Pam, thank you so much for joining us. Very welcome. 